This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Hey, everyone. This episode contains discussions of mental illness and a mass shooting. There are parts that are pretty gruesome. Take care while listening. Over the last few months, in a courtroom in Michigan, a local prosecutor has been attempting to do something I consider basically impossible. Explain a school shooting. The school shooting in question happened in November 2021 at Oxford High School. A student named Ethan Crombley came to class with a 9mm handgun. He killed four people, injured seven. Afterward, the district attorney got access to reams of information in an attempt to figure out how this shooting went down. That included security footage, cell phone video, text message after text message. It's all piled up in court each day. The defense attorney had a stack of papers that was literally several feet high. Quinn Kleinfelter is covering the story for WDET in Detroit. The judge referred to it as a leaning tower of Pisa because it actually gave you that that kind of a sense. One of the pieces of evidence here is a confession of a sort. My name is Ethan Crumbly, aged 15. And I'm going to be an ex-school shooter. This is a video the shooter took of himself the day before the massacre, where he explains exactly what he's about to do. The school I'm shooting up is Oxford High School. I'm in 10th grade there. This video was played in its entirety in open court back in July. It was a, a bit rambling and even mentions things like uh, he realized that he was going to get life sentence uh, because of his actions. It was not going to be a surprise to him. I mean, he, the phrase he used uh, was, uh, I'm going to rot in jail like a tomato. You said that he seemed to know what would happen to him. And he did plead guilty back in the fall. Has that been the end of the story in terms of responsibility for this crime? No. This hasn't been the end of the story because the district attorney here has put Ethan's parents on trial too, Jennifer and James Crombley. They're accused of missing signs that Ethan's mental health was in crisis, even buying the gun Ethan used to hurt so many of his schoolmates. You know, I keep thinking about this one thing Ethan Crumbly said 
in one of the videos he made before the shooting. He apologized to his parents. He apologized to his parents and he said, I'm ruining my life and not yours. Turns out he was he was pretty wrong about that. Yeah. In fact, when he was sentenced, uh, he got up and made a statement and specifically said that. He said that, uh, you know, my parents didn't know this. It's not their fault. But Ethan Crombley didn't have the final say here. A jury did. And that jury just found his mother guilty of four counts of involuntary manslaughter. She faces years in prison. Today on the show, how this Michigan case may change the way the courts and the rest of us think about who is responsible for gun violence. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So first it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin. In the late 1970s, cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community, which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. It would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. (laughs) And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails. There ain't no going back. This shooting at Oxford High School, it took place, like we said, in November of 2021. But according to the prosecution, Ethan Crombley started to show signs of mental illness months before that. And he wasn't suffering from simple depression. Eight months before the massacre, Ethan started texting his mother, saying 
he was seeing things around the house. He was afraid that that he was having hallucinations, that he was lonely in the house, that there was a demon throwing bowls around everywhere, that somebody slammed the door in the bathroom and, and, and um, it's haunted. And can you please come and help me? And there were psychiatrists later that showed this was a, a sign of psychosis. Uh, the mother claims that Ethan had got a Ouija board at that time, him and his friend, and that they liked to pretend that it was a haunted house and that they would actually fake things like slam a door and say, oh, did you hear the ghost do that? And so she thought that he was just messing around with her, that, that he wasn't seriously having any kind of a breakdown. Later on, Ethan wrote to a friend uh, and said that uh, he wanted to call for a doctor himself, call 911, but that he was afraid that, quote, his friends, his parents would be really pissed about that and, and worried that he was going to have a, a mental breakdown. And that uh, he wrote later that uh, when he had said something to his parents about it, that they just laughed at him, his mother, and his father told him just to take a pill and suck it up. Now, the defense, you have to say right off the bat, argues the exact opposite. You know, much of those came from messages that he sent back and forth with a friend of his, Ethan Crumbles, uh, about what the parents did or didn't do. Some of it he wrote in, a, in his own journal, which was found in the, his backpack after the shooting. And they say that the parents never saw any of that and, and that they had they known any of this, they would have done something, but that he never actually formally came out and asked them for a doctor. And the stuff that his parents allegedly might not have known about is legitimately disturbing stuff. Like he was, Ethan was reportedly torturing and decapitating baby birds and then keeping the heads and, you know, wrote to his friend at some point like, oh, my mom almost found the bird head. So it's like, it's really, really gruesome stuff. Yeah. And again, what the prosecution argued during Ethan's case is not only that and how gruesome it was, but the pleasure that he seemed to be taking from it, that he would kind of coo as he was torturing a small animal. Oh, that's OK, baby. You know, as he's inserting things into their stomach, you know, we're trying to see how far he can go before they blow up in a bloody way. You know, it's horrible to say such things, but I mean, it's the, the way it was. He also had a journal that he wrote things to himself and would talk about things like, um, they're ignoring me. I'm getting zero help for my mental issues, and it's going to cause me to shoot up the effing school. And again, um, that is written in his journal. Whether or not any authority figure, parents, school officials, anybody actually ever saw that uh, is something that uh, is in question and, and apparently may never have been the case. The parents may never have knowing that that was even in existence. What a mess. Because as a parent of a teenager, I feel like there's so much I don't know, <laughs> you know, about what's going on with my kid. So in some ways I'm empathetic. But then at the same time, the things that Ethan Crumbly is accused of doing are horrible. I think that's one of the central things of this, you know, is what should a parent know? I mean, what does a parent know? How much does a parent ever know specifically, especially in a teenage years, right? I mean, Ethan was 15 at the time. So you're in puberty, all the different things that are just inherent in that for any person, let alone one that would have some of these issues. How much do you know about what your child is doing and how much should you know and how much should you be held accountable for what you do or don't know? It's not just that Ethan Crumbly was mentally unwell 
although that seems to certainly be true. The other thing that the prosecutor wants to talk about is the presence of firearms in the Crumbly home and just how present they were. So can you explain that a little bit? Like how important were guns to this family? They had got him BB guns, they said, and set up targets in the backyard. And shooting together was kind of a family activity. It's worth noting that giving kids guns, it's not a rare thing in this community, right? No, not at all. In fact, there's a strong gun culture in Oxford. Uh, It wasn't an unusual thing to mention to somebody in Oxford, oh yeah, by the way, we got a gun, or he has a gun. And the prosecution says that the parents bought Ethan the handgun used in the crime as an early Christmas present to the point where Jennifer Crumbly was posting on social media, look at this, check it out, you know, Ethan's new Christmas toy. And they were saying, you know, how could any person who has any sign of mental illness be gifted a gun as a present? Can we talk about that day when Ethan did this horrific shooting? Because in some ways, to me, it's the most perplexing and upsetting part of the story. Because the day of the school shooting, so many people tried to intervene with Ethan Crombley. They sensed something was wrong. Can you tell me the story of that day? Yeah. They uh, had seen that he had been looking up ammunition. His teachers. Yes, teachers had noticed that and then had reprimanded him for that. The day of the shooting, they had a come across a math paper that had pictures drawn on it, uh, a stick figure that was being shot by a gun that looked identical to the one that Ethan had just been gifted as a present. And he'd written things on it like blood everywhere and the thoughts won't stop and help me. They took that and they sent him to the office, to the counselor and said, you know, He needs some help. And while they were waiting for his parents to arrive, they called them and told them to come down because they needed to talk to them. Uh, He told the counselor that he was interested in video games and it was just a a practicing for video games. And and he also asked them while he's waiting for his parents if he could do his homework. And he'd left his backpack in the classroom where they had taken him down to the counselor's office. So they went to the school and grabbed the backpack and brought it back to him and said, boy, this seems awfully heavy. And You know, it would seem very, you know, almost certain that the gun was in there then. But nobody checked. Nobody looked. And so they sit down. The parents finally arrive. And the counselor tells him that he was concerned that uh, Ethan might have suicidal tendencies and wasn't worried about a mass shooting, but but him hurting himself and told him that, you know, you need to take him home and he needs counseling. Now, right? Like he needs to see someone immediately. Well, no, that's what, again, that's another point in the trial. Uh, you know, they said, you know, he should be seen. And uh, Jennifer and James Crumbly said, well, we're working. He was a DoorDash driver between jobs. And she had a another job that she said she had to get back to for a meeting. So they um, weren't able to take him home right then, they claimed. And so the counselor said, well, you need to make sure and get him counseling within the next 48 hours or else we'll send Child Protective Services, you know, to check on it. Uh, But Jennifer Crumbly has argued, or her defense during this trial, that she relied on these professionals who made it 
seem very clearly that they didn't consider Ethan posing a danger to anybody. Or she claims she would have took him home then. And yet it seemed like the Crombley parents did suspect something. Because within hours of this meeting at the school, there were reports of something happening at the high school. They see emergency responders at the high school. They're texting their son saying, don't do it. And the dad is going home to like search for the gun, like, oh gosh, where's the gun, right? Yeah, the father rushes back to the house the first time that he hears of this and finds that the gun is gone and that the ammunition is gone and then makes a, a horridly, you know, hurried and nervous 911 call and that, you know, he thinks maybe his child could be the shooter. Eventually, both Jennifer and James Crombley were charged with involuntary manslaughter. But Jennifer, she was the first to go on trial. Her lawyers hoped they could play on jurors' sympathies. The defense, as one of their arguments said, you know, find Jennifer not guilty. That's for every parent who hasn't known exactly what their child is doing. For every parent who made a mistake but, you know, shouldn't be held criminally accountable. It's the crux of the entire case, really, on that side. How far can you criminalize a parent for maybe not being the best parent in the world? When we come back... Now that the jury has rejected this argument, will this Michigan prosecutor's approach spread? This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. By winning this case, Quinn Kleinfelter says, prosecutors have done something novel legally. In the past, parents have been charged with negligence or reckless conduct after a child commits gun violence or there's an accident with a parent's gun. But that is fundamentally different from what Jennifer Crombley was found guilty of in Michigan. Some of the other cases are a lot of times like uh, you you kept a gun in a shoebox and a five-year-old could find it and shoot themselves or others or go take it to first grade and play with it and shoot somebody. You know, it was carelessness and, and negligence, as you say. I mean, in this case, they're charging involuntary manslaughter and gross negligence and saying basically that they're an accessory to the murder because of their actions that they took or, or didn't take. It's, it's that question. If they had taken what the prosecutions argued over and over, if they had taken certain simple steps, then it would never have gotten to the point where these children would have been killed. 
if they'd even mentioned to the counselors when they were meeting with them, oh yeah, by the way, we just bought him a gun. You know, um, you might want to check if he's got it or something like that even, but they didn't. And because they did not take those steps, did not take him from class and, and avoided getting him any help when he claims he wanted some, that's why the prosecution says these parents are as complicit as the getaway driver in a robbery. A big part of the prosecution's case involved interrogating Jennifer Crombley's vigilance as a parent. The prosecutors brought up her expensive horse riding hobby and her extramarital affairs as a way of implying she was inattentive. They even tracked down footage of the family reuniting after Ethan was arrested. There was one video that, that I hadn't seen before, I don't know that it was put out publicly, where Ethan had been taken in custody and was sitting in the police station, and his parents actually got in to see him. This is just a couple of hours after the shooting. And during that little bit of time, they don't really say anything. They don't, you know, say, oh, are you okay? You know, um, oh, my poor child or hug him or anything like that. But as they're leaving and walking out of the room, Jennifer starts kind of yelling at him, going, why, why? And the prosecution will paint that, that initial reaction especially, as a lack of empathy towards their own child and that they're more preoccupied with their own affairs, you know, than they were with their child. And if they hadn't watched while their son was potentially spiraling down the drain, they could have saved the lives of four other teenagers. I have to say that as the mother of a teenager, I have really mixed feelings about the focus that's been happening on Jennifer, the mom here. There's just been so much basically talking about how she's a bad mom a cold mom. All of those things may be true. I'm unclear if they amount to a crime. What does that say about what we're really saying with this prosecution? That was something that the defense argued again in the closing arguments. You know, as you may not like Jennifer Crumbly particularly, maybe for whatever reason, but this is not a case about her morality or, or what you think her morality, you know, one way or the other. It's a question about what would a reasonable person have done and did they allow access to a weapon that they should not have? And the defense, I mean, they summed it up and said, you know, what parent is going to buy a gun for a child that they think has mental illness? And that's mainly you know, their argument, along with the fact that she wasn't this way, that she was maybe a certain type of person, but demonizing her is not tantamount to saying that she's guilty. But now that Jennifer Crombley has been found guilty, the question becomes just how far a parent's responsibility for their child will go. What a lot of legal experts will say, though, is that it's a warning sign to other cases across the country that you know, where where will the line be drawn? You know, if your child goes on a robbery spree and there are some signs that they were a robber, are you going to be, you know, penalized and charged with accessory to robbery or something? I'm making these up, but I mean, it's it's along those lines. You know, how, how where will the line be drawn? And as we all know, uh, legal people want to go off precedence. When something's been set, then they're either having to argue completely against it, which is something that they 
will have to set a precedent of their own, or they'll use that as the example. Well, this Michigan case, such and such happened, so therefore our variation of it, you know, based on what was found in that case, we're going to do this. And they really say that that, they know that could be a crux for a whole lot of cases coming up. Quinn, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. I'm really grateful. Thank you. I wish it was under better circumstances. Quinn Kleinfelter is a host and senior news editor for 101.9 WDET in Detroit. Jennifer Crombley's husband and Ethan's dad, James Crombley, starts his manslaughter trial next month. And that's our show. What Next is produced by Paige Osborne, Elena Schwartz, Rob Gunther, Madeline Ducharme, and Anna Phillips. We are led by Alicia Montgomery with a little boost from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations here at Slate. And I'm Mary Harris. Thanks for listening. Catch you back here next time. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So, first it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin. In the late 1970s, cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. It would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. (laughs) And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails, there ain't no going back.